you hear about this church in Texas, uh, Corpus Christi, that's giving $2 million worth of prizes away for Easter? <laughs> They're giving away cars and like stuff. $2 million to draw people at. So they, they had the pastor on CNN and they were interviewing him and saying, why are you doing that? And so, of course, there are a bunch of Christians that are like, boo, you know, it's, we're commercial as it is already. And it's just feeding into people's commercialism, blah, blah, blah. And I was just thinking, I'm like, you know, we could have done something similar. Maybe what we could have done is like maybe get a T-shirt or two that said, I went to New Community for Easter. And all I got was this stinking T-shirt, you know, I don't know. There's no gift for you, okay? So if y'all came open, there was a gift. That right there, amen. Why y'all getting church on me today, man? You got two people pointing to the cross going, that was the gift. But that's the truth, ain't it? So open your Bibles with me. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Man, I, I, I hope you guys came today with just an unbelievable amount of excitement for who God is and what he is going to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, it is the sort of text in the epistles or letters that Paul wrote where he delves into the meaning and significance of the resurrection. I am not going to cover all of it because this actually is just kind of a subtext for what we're going to talk about. But I do want to read portions of it and you follow along on the screen with you. Verse 3, chapter 15, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. When the perishable has been closed, verse 54, with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death, where has been swallowed up in victory? Death, O oh death, where is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word. And some of us that grew up in church says, thanks be to God. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all of this is meaningless. All of this is pointless. All of this is, in his words, futile. 
Because unlike all the other founders of major religions, our founder, we believe, Christians, that he is still alive today. And that is the essence and the cornerstone of what our faith is and the essence and cornerstone of what today is all about. The essence of Jesus, essence of Christianity is not some teachings. Essence of Christianity is not some philosophy. Essence of Christianity is not a way of life. Essence of Christianity is a savior who was crucified for our sins and rose again in three days. The essence of Christianity that Easter Resurrection Sunday celebrates is that there is a savior, not a teacher, not a philosopher, not even a revolutionary leader, a savior who has conquered sin and death. And he has risen again. Christianity stands or falls by the resurrection, friends. If there's no savior, there's no message. All we have is a series of dogma. But his tomb is empty. He has risen. He is risen indeed. What I want to do today is this. What I want to do today is do a 30,000 feet perspective about what today represents. Because for many of us that grew up in church, we're going, what does today really represent? And we have some semblance knowledge of what today represents, but, but we don't have an understanding. If I do my job right, listen to this. The whole Bible will all of a sudden make sense to you today. Genesis to Revelation. That's my task. No, you're not going to be here for two hours. I promise. <laughs> 30,000 foot perspective about, and in order for us to understand what Jesus really accomplished in the resurrection, we need to go back. How far back? All the way back, like as in Adam. Because Paul talks about Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. He says something about Adam has something to do with what Christ accomplished. In order for us to find Adam, we need to go back to, big two. I'm serious, y'all. We're going to go all the way to the Bible, okay? Genesis. Genesis. So here we go. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Don't worry. I'm going to do like five minutes. I'm going to cover the entire Old Testament like in five minutes, okay? (laughs) Oh, you watch. First, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to what it says. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. The Hebrew word there is baruch. Say that with me. Ready? Baruch. And in our church, we like to say this. If you're speaking Hebrew, you got to spit on your neighbors. If you're not spitting on your neighbors, you're not saying it right. Baruch. It's blessed. It's a huge word. Them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here's the beginning. God blesses. Baruch. His prized creation. And he, and, 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 and the very beginning of time, as God creates man in his image, the, the, the word that the Hebrews used was the word shalom. Shalom described the state of being, the state of things in the very beginning. They're in the flow of their creator's wishes and desires and will. In the very beginning of time, picture this with me, universal flourishing, harmony, peace with God, peace with their maker, completely under the rule and reign of God. The story begins with people at peace and in harmony with their maker. Verse chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east. Pay attention to the location. Where is the garden? In the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Central to the opening story of humanity, really, and the world is the context in which God's prized creation is placed. He is placed in a garden. Did you know that Adam's first job was that he was a gardener? Adam's first job, first occupation ever in the history of the world was a gardener. 
Adam, the first gardener. And he is placed in the garden to care for God's good creation, to engage in culture making. But here's what the garden also symbolizes. The garden also symbolizes harmony. Again, shalom, universal flourishing, not just between God and man, but between man and creation. The garden, the place where creation functions as God intended. There's no decay. There are no hurricanes. There are no tornadoes. There are no tsunamis. There are no earthquakes. Creation functioning as God intended. But not everything is how it ought to be. In perfection, man is alone. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. And second Hebrew word, say it with me. Haloop. Haloop. That's the Hebrew word for helper, which is Eve. Eve is created. And Adam is a very happy man. Chapter 2, verse 23. The man said, this is now the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I'm sorry, was that funny? Adam or Adam in Hebrew means ground man or dirt man. And Eve in Hebrew means the mother of the living. Adam and Eve are also representative of something. They are representative all of humanity. The man and his wife being naked and not being ashamed is more than just a physical reality. It goes much deeper. Check this out. In the very beginning of time, man and woman are in community. And they're totally accepting, totally trusting, totally vulnerable, totally at ease with themselves and with each other. Relationship as God intended. There's no fronting. There's no wearing of masks. There's no saying, I'm fine when you're hurting and broken inside. There's real honesty, real love, real unconditional acceptance. So the story opens with people experiencing shalom with their maker and with each other and with creation itself. The world in the beginning as God created is a place of universal flourishing and harmony under the rule and reign of God. How many of you are familiar with this story? But things begin to quickly fall apart. God gives them the freedom to live this way that is under his rule and reign or live some other way. And man and woman decide to live some other way. Taking the fruit was man's emphatic declaration. I will live some other way. And man and woman decide to come out from under the rule and reign of God. It was an emphatic declaration by man. I want you to leave me alone. And I want to live my life my way. We've been saying it for all of humanity. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Very important. Everybody look up here. The early Jewish leaders or Jewish teachers, rabbi, has something called the principle of the first mention. The principle of the first mention. That is, the Hebrews were taught that whenever they came across a certain word in the Bible, first thing they thought was, where does that word first appear? Where's the first time in Scripture that word appears? And so the readers would have come to this and saw the word naked and said, where does that word first appear? Ah, yes, Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked, and yet they felt no shame. But here's what happens when they decide to go their own way, come out from under the rule and reign of God. They become aware, the Bible says, of their nakedness. The result, they make covering for themselves. I want you to notice something. This is the first thing that happens as a result of sin. The first thing that happens as a result of sin is not murder. 
It's not injustice of some kind. The first thing that happens as a result of sin is relationship no longer functions as God intended. The first thing that happens as a result of sin coming into our world is relationship is fractured. First consequence of taking the fruit is it affects how these two people relate to each other. They cover up. You know what they're saying? Anybody familiar? They're saying, I can't let you see who I really am. I can't be really vulnerable with you because if you really knew who I was, you might judge me and you might use that against me. If you really saw the real me, you wouldn't want to be around me. If you saw what was in my closet, you probably want to be my friend. And so I'm going to hide. I'm going to pretend. I'm going to wear masks. Anybody familiar with that? Fig leaves are nothing new. You have them. I have them. Fig leaves are our way of protecting ourselves from fear, rejection, and sometimes even love. It's what we used to cover ourselves because we're terrified of real community. The effect of fallen sin, where there once was trust, there's now fear. Where there once was vulnerability, there's now fronting. Where there once was acceptance, there's now rejection. Where there once was unconditional love, there's now judgment. And if you're not a Christian here today, you're an atheist, agnostic, or a Buddhist, or Muslim, you don't consider yourself religious, this is not a Christian problem. This is a humanity problem. Every single one of us, regardless of our faith orientation, knows what this feels like inside. Every single one of us knows what it feels like to long for intimacy, to be fully known and to be fully accepted without fear of rejection, and yet feeling like we can never get there. We can never get there. We can never get there. Why? Sin. Rebellion. But the consequences of sin would go much deeper. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Genesis, the writer of Genesis, again, deep, pushing you and I into deeper realities. They are not now just disconnected from each other. They are now disconnected from their maker, from their creator. When God says, where are you? He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's making a declaration. When he says, where are you? He's saying, look where you are now. Look where you are now. You've come out from under the rule and reign of God. You've chosen to go your way. And look where it's left you. The result is disconnect from their maker, their creator, God. And there's no longer peace but hostility. They're no longer friends that walk in the garden. The Bible says they're now enemies. But sin's far-reaching consequences would go beyond just them and God. Sin's resistance to God's authority leads to the unraveling of all of creation as judgment comes. Genesis 3.17. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. As Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation will become held in bondage to decay. How does the story end? The story of humanity. Genesis 3.23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
tree in the garden we see in Revelation eventually is symbolic of eternal living. Men and women in their rebellion are rapidly decaying, rapidly dying as death enters the world. And God looks at man and woman in that condition and he says, you're going to be stuck and frozen in this condition forever. And things are going to get worse and worse. So God in his mercy drives them out. He drives them out from the garden. He drives them out from east of Eden. East of Eden is what life looks like for many of us today. East of Eden is where you and I have lost our way and our connectedness to our maker and instead worship created things. East of Eden is where we go looking for our identity, our love, and our acceptance in anything but God. East of Eden is where addictions are norm way of life. East of Eden is where we long for life, wholeness, healing, and peace. East of Eden is where no amount of self-help actually helps. East of Eden is where relationships and societies are fractured by racial and social injustice. East of Eden is where poverty, oppression, and slavery wreaks havoc on humanity that bears the image of God. East of Eden is where we are disconnected from our physical environment and exploitation and abuse is a way of life. How many of you are familiar with life east of Eden? So what's God to do? Start all over? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful he didn't start all over. Despite all this, the amazing God, if scripture says, I'm not going to start all over. God says, I'm going to begin the ultimate restoration project to reconcile sinful humanity to me. Ultimate restoration project where I'm going to reconcile sinful humanity to each other. Ultimate restoration project in which I'm going to restore and heal all of creation in such a way that no death, no decay, no sickness would ever be a part of it. And all of the Old Testament prophets, you guys, pointed to this and says, God will do this. God will do this. God will do this. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 6 is an example of the unfulfilled promise that they awaited. The wolf will lie with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat the straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples and all the nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. And all the Old Testament prophets are saying, who will fulfill this promise? Who is the son of Jesse? Who is this that God is going to send? Who is the Messiah that is going to fulfill God's promise to heal and restore all of creation? Who will that be? And the Old Testament ends with 400 years of silence as people await with weighted breath. Who will this be? When will this come? How will this happen? And all of a sudden, a Jewish baby is born. 
in a small town called Bethlehem on the wrong side of the tracks. He takes on the occupation of his dad, which was carpentry. And then eventually at the age of 30, he leaves his work as a carpenter and pursues an itinerant ministry as a preacher. He starts healing people. He starts raising the dead. He starts proclaiming amazing things that the Old Testament prophets had prophesied about. And people are beginning to follow him and saying, is he the one? Is he the one? Is he the one? And their hopes are beginning to rise. But just as hopes begin to rise, it was dashed. As he is tried unjustly, crucified like a common criminal, and buried. And all of nation of Israel is wondering, what now? And the gospel writer John picks up this story. In John 19, verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in the spices, in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a... a and in the a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The early followers that taught, that listened to the teachings of the rabbi were aware of a principle called what now? Do you remember? The principle of the first mention. Which means that whenever there's a word that appears, they were taught to say, where, where? Where, 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 where did that word first appear again? Ah, yes, yes, garden, garden, garden. Where did the word first appear? It's Genesis 3. And all of a sudden, connections are being made. Garden. Isn't that the place where death first entered human history? God, the garden, garden, isn't that, isn't that the place where the first Adam disobeyed, came out from under the rule and reign of God, and he took life into his own hands, and as a result, sin, death, and decay entered the, the garden. Could this have significance beyond just the story of a carpenter turned Messiah? The garden, could this have cosmic significance? Could this be pointing to a deeper reality? Could this Jesus dies in a garden and is buried in a garden, goes to his death bearing the weight and evil of injustice in the world that has infected and corrupted human life and the whole world? Could the event somehow that happens here in the what? Say it with me. The garden have ramifications that unfold for all of history. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Genesis, uh, Genesis, John chapter 20, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Verse 15, woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the... Anybody getting chills down their back right now? All of a sudden, connections are being made. 
She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Mary turns around and sees Jesus himself. And she thinks in one of those typically Yohanan moments of irony, thinks he's the, what? Gardener. And of course he, of course he is. The first Adam was a what? A gardener. He disobeys, comes out from the rule and reign of God. Sin and death and decay enter human history. Could this be the second Adam? Paul thought so. First Corinthians 15, 22. We just read it. For as in Adam all die. In Christ, the second Adam, we what? Will live. Connections are being made. Are they being made to you? Is this too much? Is this too fast for some of you? Connections are being made. Connections are being made. Here's what the John, here's what the gospel writer John is getting you and I to see. The garden, the place where sin and death and decay entered. The garden where the first Adam didn't do it right. And on Good Friday, death and decay lay there in the grave. But on Easter Sunday, in the garden, God begins the ultimate restoration project. Yes. In the garden. Connections. Connections he made. In the garden. Where sin, death, and decay entered. In the garden. There's now what? Resurrection. And new life. In the garden. Where disobedience entered. And all of humanity fell. In the garden. One man's obedience. Lead to redemption and healing for the whole world. In the I know some of you are looking through your Bibles going, where else does the word garden appear? <laughs> Let's finish this, Joan, in story. Verse 16, then Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me. I always found that odd, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told him that he had said these things to her. John wants you to see, the gospel writer wants you to see, this story is not just about some man who died and rises again. There's a deeper cosmic reality, a cosmic significance going on. This has something to do with the whole of human drama being played out in front of us. Death that came through the first Adam, decay and, 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 and destruction that came through the first Adam in the garden. In the garden, God begins the restoration project. In the garden, God through his son Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God where there will be healing for man and God, healing for man with each other and healing for all of creation. In the and by the way, if you're wondering, go to Revelation 21, where it says, in the middle of the city where God's people will reign, there is a garden with a tree of life. Oh. See, the whole Bible is connected. It's not random stories where we get our moral tales from. And the first believers began to draw conclusions about the ramification that this had on the universe. And one of these guys was Paul. And the scripture text that we read in 1 Corinthians 15 is when Paul delves into this topic of the resurrection. He says, what does it mean? In the text that we read today, there are four things. And I promise I'll spend like two minutes on each of these and we're done. First, ramification. There's a word of challenge. 
there's a word of challenge. Verses 3 to 8. I'm not going to read it. You can look at your Bibles. What is this? This is for those of you that are here with your friends that are saying, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolute nonsense. It's a legend. It's a fable that was made up by his early disciples. I talk about this every Easter, and I'm just going to do a snippet of it and move on. There were hundreds of people, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, who said they saw him. They talked to him. They put their fingernails, fingernails, their fingers in the nail prints. I guess if you put your finger, you put your fingernails also. Over a 40-day period, Paul says, many, many people saw him, and they saw him repeatedly. And Paul says, literally, they're still alive. Now, check this out. 1 Corinthians, the letter that he writes, is written 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. 20 years. This is also a time called Pax Romana, in which travel is as easy as it has ever been in the entire known world. And Paul says, if you want to find out whether Jesus Christ is really alive, go check out and ask the people. They're still alive. Who saw him, spent time with him. He dares them and says, go check it out. It's not fiction. It's not legend. They're still alive. Go check it out. Talk to them. Let's be real practical. How did the early Christians then come to believe in the resurrection? They didn't get it through wishful thinking. I wish it was true. They got it through thinking. They didn't come to believe in the resurrection through wishful thinking. They got it through thinking. They got it through coming together and sitting down and saying, why would all these people say that it really happened? Could this be a hoax? People don't usually die for a hoax. Could this be a hallucination? Uh, 500 people don't hallucinate at the same time. What, what, What could this be? They got their hope through thinking, not wishful thinking. And if you're somebody that says, I just can't believe in the resurrection because historically you just can't prove that it's true, then you need to come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for how this tiny little movement changed the Roman world when no other group did. They didn't get it through wishful thinking. They got it through thinking. And you know what? That's how we come to believe in the resurrection. It's not through wishful thinking. It's thinking critically through the evidence that's provided before us. Word of challenge. Secondly, assurance of forgiveness. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. What does the resurrection mean? Friends, resurrection means that your sins are forgiven. I know. Sit there and go, really? We don't believe it. We say we do. We kind of do up here. But we don't really believe that Jesus Christ's resurrection for us means that our sins are forgiven. How do you know that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins? That in your heart of hearts, you and I both know that we owe. The Bible says the resurrection. You know what the resurrection is? Is a cosmic receipt. It's God writing across history and across the whole world for you to see. That when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are paid for, forgiven, period. Why do you keep your receipts? It's your way of saying, I paid for this. You go to Best Buy, you buy the stuff, you walk out, the guy in the blue shirt stops you and says, may I see your receipt? Why? I want to see if that's paid for. Pull out the receipt and say, it's paid for. The The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's cosmic receipt for all the world to see, saying, your sins are forgiven. Is that good news? Now, here's the thing. The degree to which you believe that, and that's the thing, we don't believe it. The degree to which you and I believe that is the degree to which we will be able to live confident, free, joy-filled lives. 
Because Paul says, if, he, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. So, Christ has been raised, so you are no longer in your sins. You are in who? Christ. And the degree to which you know that you are in Christ. So that when the Father sees you, he sees you as he sees who? His Son. So your determining factor in your relationship with God is not about your past, but about Christ's past. It's not about your present, but his present. It's not about your works of righteousness. It's about his work of righteousness on the cross. And the degree to which you know that for certain is the degree to which you'll be able to live joy-filled lives. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that he doesn't just wipe your slate clean. He throws away the slate altogether. No more penalty for sin. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's a legal term meaning to be declared not guilty. And Christ being resurrected. And help me out, y'all. If this is great news to you, Jesus Christ being resurrected is where I find my acceptance, my justification before God. My right standing before God, my acceptance before this holy God. It's not about how moral I am. It's not about whether I cuss or drink and go with the girls that do. It's not about whether I behave right. It's not about whether I try harder. My acceptance, justification before a holy God today, right now, is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Nothing more and nothing less. My acceptance before God. I'll tell you why this is powerful for me. Maybe somebody could relate here. See, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a church where people thought that if you became a Christian, you should be done away with sin altogether. Anybody else? Anybody else? Raise your hands. Hi. Come on now. All right. We're going to have an Oprah moment here. That's the church environment I grew up in. It was sort of like you, you become a Christian and you're done away with sin. But here's the thing. I became a Christian and I still had a little lust issue. I became a Christian. I still had some anger issues. So where do I go then? Because where I grew up, the people in my church, they, wouldn't, they weren't even willing to acknowledge the fact that they, you know, they struggle with it too. Everybody walked around busy pretending that everything was okay. So I went to church, kind of church where, you know, it seems like people, you become a Christian and people are sort of fluttered around in Shekinah glory. And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Is, is there something like radically wrong with me? Can anybody relate this morning? I'm like, I became a Christian and the gospel that was preached to me was, you become a Christian, you become saved and you don't. And I continue to do. So what was a man supposed to do? I figured Jesus doesn't work for me until I came across Romans chapter 8 where it says, there is therefore now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I heard God say, you know what? There is a little issue. But you know what? I'm not done with you yet. And I finish what I start. And you know what? There is a little sin issue. There is a little problem, bitterness, little lust issue. But you know what? Here's the thing. Keep pressing. Keep walking. Keep persevering. Because I am with you. I'm not done with you yet. And I'm not done with you. Find godly people that you can do life with. Get guidance. Pray. But I am with you. I'm not done with you. I finish what I start, you know. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Who will bring a charge against you, Paul says. He says, nobody. Why? If God doesn't bring a charge against you because you are justified, who can? The little voice inside of our head. That's who. Satan comes along and says, you know you're still a sinner. You know you're still not living, right? How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you call yourself a Christian and do that? How can you, you look at the kind of husband you are. Look at the kind of wife. Look at the, that voice that says, Jesus doesn't love you. And we listen to that. You know what God says? God says, why are you listening to that voice? Do you know what I'm going to do to him one day? I'm going to kill him, destroy him, and torment him forever. <laughs> so I wouldn't listen to that one if I were you. 
It is God who justifies who is it that condemns. Is this good news? Is this good news? You stand today, not tomorrow when you do better. Today, not when you're a better Christian and you act better. Today, if you're in Christ, uncondemnable, unseparatable, totally and utterly accepted and loved by God. This is the gospel. Good news. Third ramification. Motivation for mission. Motivation for mission, verses 24 to 27. Amazing thing is that the early Christians understood what happened to Jesus in terms of the kingdom. Do you notice that? They don't say, become a Christian so you can go to heaven. Paul says, Jesus Christ rose so that God will put all things under his authority and his power and have dominion over all things. The early Christians understood what happened to Jesus in terms of the kingdom of God. That is, God is not only going to solve the problem of personal sin, but he's going to solve the problem of evil and injustice in the world. The resurrection proves, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, that this material world matters. This world that we live in matters to God. All the other religions of the world say that salvation is an escape from this material world. Easter declares this world matters to God. How do you know? He rose physically, literally, bodily from the dead saying, you see this? This matters to God. For those of you that are wondering, what's the connection between why we work for social justice and the resurrection? Here it is. Jesus rises from the dead, literally, physically, and bodily to say, God is going to do this to all of creation someday. So he says, get busy. Who are you just sitting around waiting for heaven to come for? Get busy. Because what you do? I, I just killed a lily. Jesus tells Mary in verse 17, and this could be, this is told over and over again, verse 17. So go and tell, go and tell the people that God's promise for new heavens and new earth has begun. The resurrection, friends, is literally the turning point in human history. The resurrection is the sign that Jesus is, God has inaugurated the coming rule and reign of God that is going to heal and restore our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship to the created order once and for all. Jesus Christ rises physically, literally, and bodily and says, first fruits. We don't use that word because we don't come from an agricultural society. Think of the word sample. He says, you see this? This is a sample of what's going to happen to the rest of the world. (laughs) Jesus has given us a mission for the world of what he was for the world. He said, as the Father, listen, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And how did the Father send Jesus? He sent him proclaiming and preaching, yes, but healing the sick. Healing diseases, working for issues of injustice, raising people from the dead. Jesus, when proclaiming the whole gospel of word and deed, he cares about the poor. He cares about the marginalized. He cares about the weak. Resurrection means not an escape from this world, but radical mission to the world based on Jesus' lordship over the world. That's why this whole text, you guys, at the very end, 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't end by saying, he's risen, so let's celebrate. He says, listen, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you ever notice that? 
The text on resurrection, he says, so get busy. Get off your high knees and get busy to work. You know what that means? That means we ask today. What does the resurrection of Christ mean for my public life? This is the reason why immigration issue matters. This is the reason why education policy matters. This is the reason why communities being healed of injustices like poverty and homelessness matters to God. Amen? This is the reason why we fight. This is the reason why we work. This is the reason why we give out our lives to the Lord. Not so that we can earn some reward in heaven. So that when God comes back to restore and heal all things, he's going to say, good work. Let me take it from here. I'm going to finish what you began doing in partnership with me. Do you get that? You are not serving in mission so you can be acceptable. You're already accepted. Get that through your sick head. You're already accepted. You don't work for missions. You get a reward in heaven. You work for mission because Jesus says, I'm going to come one day and eradicate all injustice, all evil, all poverty, all wickedness and sin. And all the work that you've done will be finished and become a glorious reality. How many of you, is that good news to you? This is what we care about this world, folks. Somebody asked Martin Luther one day, hey, what would you do if Jesus was coming back tomorrow? You know what he said? He said, I'd plant the tree. Think of how well it would do. (laughs) Secularists say, there's nothing after this world. Everything just goes up in a vapor. Traditional religion people say, after we die, we go to heaven. So let's wait for the rapture. Jesus Christ says, I have come. I have risen. Get to work. Lastly, death's ultimate cure. I loved Shasta's spoken word. Because he hit on that verse that for some of us is a mystery. Carlton, you might come up, please, because we're almost done here. Because Paul ends this incredible text by saying, Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. You guys, listen. Everybody, just a couple more. Look, everybody look up here. The word sting, when Paul says, Where, O death, is your sting? The word sting in Greek doesn't mean bite or sting. The word sting in Greek literally means poisonous sting. It was a word used for the scorpion sting. It was lethal. So follow with me. What's interesting about this image is that Paul says, it's not the bite that kills you. He's literally saying, hey, death can't really kill you. You know what really kills you? It's the poison in the bite. Who wants the poison in the bite? Paul says, the poison is the law. Let me break it down for you this way. There's a reason why all of humanity fears death. Poets, philosophers, theologians, counselors have spent human history talking about why humanity fears death. And Paul gets to it right here. Why do we fear death? If we really believe that when we die, that's it, extinction, nothing else, boom, we're done. We wouldn't fear death. Because when we're alive, we don't need to fear death. So life, when we die, extinction. What's no need to fear death. That's all there is. So why fear death? Throughout history, mankind, we wrestle with this. The reason why we fear death is because deep down inside, we don't think that once we die, that's it. Maybe there is something else. And so we fear it. We fear it in our hearts. If death is all there is and I die, extinction, we don't even fear death. But we think there, and what is that? Paul says, poison of death is the law. We fear that once we die, we will stand before judgment day. And 
we will be asked a question. How did you Do you say, I don't believe that. Really? Can you be absolutely sure? Are you absolutely positively sure that once you die, that's it? There's nothing. As long as maybe could fear poison is in your soul. The wonderful news about the gospel is this. There is judgment. But God was judged for us. There is judgment day, but the judge, ultimate judge of the universe, came down to earth, was judged on our behalf. And you know what that means? Paul's saying, so death can't really kill you. Death can't really harm you. You can go to death. Nah, 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 nah. Come on. Why? Because once I die, there is resurrection. You're just going to make me stronger. Come on. There is judgment day, but I live with confident joy. Why? He paid my debt. How do you know? He rose from the dead. If you're not a Christian here today, and you're going, that's a lot to take in, man. That's a lot to take in. I, I, I want to tell you this. I want to tell you this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died on your behalf. Good Friday. He took your sins, sins past, present, future, every act of selfishness, every act of addiction, pride, every act of hatred, bitterness, unforgiving spirit, every act. He also went to the cross, not just for the things that you've done, but for the ultimate sin of usurping God's authority on the throne. Usurping God's authority on the throne, saying, I'm going to do life my way. I'm going to do life my way. Even for that sin of the ultimate traitor race, God sends his son. And on Good Friday, judgment and darkness enveloped him, and he took all of it. So that for those of us who are in Christ, await our judgment day with expectation and anticipation. Because we'll stand before God and hear those words, not your good works, you're a good person because you're not, but on his good work because he lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And literally the Bible says when you come and say, God, I, I believe you did that for me. I believe you did that for me. And I want to 
leave my life of self-centeredness, selfishness, and pride, arrogance, and sin. And I want to begin to follow you. If that's you, what we do in our church periodically is we invite people to come forward where I will meet you before you get to the very front and I will hug you, give you a warm embrace, and I will pray for you. And our church comes around you. Because here's the deal. Becoming a Christian is not just, I'm going to do this in my private. Becoming a Christian actually is a very public communal event. It's you saying, I can't live the Christian life on my own. No doubt. None of us can. It's saying, I need help, right? I, I need people to come alongside me, help me do this. Absolutely. And our church is a phenomenal church in the sense that anybody that says, I want to take the step of doing that, we come around you. We'll not be careful. If you want to know that you can stand before God completely and totally justified, I did it for you. If that's you, I'm going to take a moment or two to have anybody that wants to come to come beating going that's me Peter I got you know what if that's your voice right now that's me and you feel like your butt is stuck to your cushion you're like I can't I'm telling you right now I'm giving you permission you can do that get up and come forward right here I'll meet you here
folks from our church that know these men and women or are friends with them or just feel compelled to say, I got to get up and pray with that guy. Come on up, come on up. Or that lady, woman, come on up, come on up. Surround, surround these men and women. This is New Community Church being the church. We don't sit and just observe people wanting to make an enormous commitment that impacts their entire life. We as a church come around people and say, salvation into the community of God happens in community. So we together come to that. And for those of you that came up, I'm going to pray this prayer. It's not a magic prayer. It doesn't have a magic, you know, sort of thing to it. It's just simply a prayer that I want you to pray in your heart. It's a prayer for guidance. It's a prayer for direction. It's a prayer for wisdom. It's a prayer for strength. God. Pray for these men and women. Lord, the knowledge is true. Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would, by the power of your Spirit, begin to work. Help them to comprehend and understand truth. Help them to embrace and believe these truths. We pray that the seeds that were planted today would deeply be embedded in their hearts so that it would bear fruit. God, we thank you for these lives. We pray also for the men and women that you will send around them. Men and women that you will send around them, who will love on them, who will care for them, who will walk with them, who will pick them up when they fall again and again and again, who will, Father, journey this journey with them, who will be their spiritual mentors, who will be their friend, who will be their counselors, who will be, God, the embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ of forgiveness. Pray, Father, that you would begin to establish and build these relationships in these communities. The Word of God says, Church, that one, even when one person repents and falls and gives their life to the Lord, all of heaven rejoices. Today, all of heaven rejoices. Can we clap and give praise? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. our God. Stand together now. Stand together now as we worship our God as we close this service with shouts of adoration and praise of who our God is and what he has done.